We now continue in the book of the Atonement, chapter 4, its prerequisites, and in section 3, the mediator must be holy, a book written by Arthur W. Pink, and we begin with the third section, more than a sinless nature was required by the Redeemer. Satan was originally created without sin, and yet he fell. Adam had no impurity in his nature when he left his maker's hands, yet he transgressed. But Jesus Christ was not merely negatively sinless. He was, in his very humanity, positively holy, that holy thing which shall be born of thee, Luke 1.35, were the words of God to his mother. It is striking and blessed to note that when the Holy Spirit exhibits from the human side the personal perfections of the high priest, he speaks of him first as holy, which refers to the intrinsic excellency of his nature, then as harmless, which speaks of his entire freedom from evil in respect to conduct, undefiled, which denotes the absolute purity of his official qualification and administration, Hebrews 7.26. The intrinsic and unsullied purity of the mediator was necessary to the acceptance of his services. Beautifully, as Dr. Dick pointed out, this primitive purity he retained during the course of his life, conversing and familiarly associating with sinners but not learning their ways. He died indeed as a criminal, but he died for sins not his own. He suffered the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. Nay, he was not only free from actual transgression, he was incapable of sin, so fortified against temptation that he could not be seduced. He stood firm in the severest trial. No argument, however subtle, could perplex his reason. No solicitation, however powerful, could seduce his affections. Satan exhausted his arts against him in vain, to which we may add, he touched the leper but was uncontaminated. He came into contact with the dead but remained undefiled. He bare our sins in his own body on a tree, yet it was the Holy One, unsolid, that was laid in the grave. Psalm 16:10. Number four, the mediator must be master of himself. The one whose work it is to reconcile two parties at variance must not be under personal obligations to either. None could offer a satisfaction to the law if he himself owed a debt unto it. A mediator must be independent, having full power over himself, possessing complete right to act on the part of others. Those who are subject to the authority of another cannot dispose of themselves and their services without his consent. Now angels and men are the absolute property of their creator and must wait his command before they may venture to engage in any enterprise not comprehended in the original law of their nature. The life of man is God's gift and must not be thrown away not, nor surrendered, no matter what good might be anticipated from the sacrifice without the direct permission of the giver. In a word, a mediator between God and man must have full power over his own life to let down and take it up again. It is not enough that the substitute be innocent, is free from claims of the law for which he gives satisfaction to others. He may be under obligation to another law, the fulfillment of whose demand may render it impossible to occupy the place of surety. His whole time and energies may be thus, as it were, previously engaged, so as to put it out of his power to make a transfer of any part of them for the behoof of others. This is indeed the case with all creatures. Whatever service they are capable of performing, they owe originally and necessarily to God. They are, from their very nature, incapable of meriting for themselves, much less for others. The right of self-disposal belongs not to creatures. Themselves and all that pertains to them are the property of him who made and preserves the same. 
they are under the law to God. They are not under the covenant which God made with man, to be sure, but the law under which they exist demands all their energies. It has a claim upon them for the full amount of the services which they are capable of performing, and thus denies them all right of giving satisfaction to another law in behalf of a different order of creatures. Dr. W. Symington. Number five, the mediator must act voluntarily. This is so self-evident it should need no arguing. Without this qualification, all others would be worthless. Let an appointed mediator be ever so dignified in his person. Let him be most intimately related to man. Let him be entirely free from all moral contamination. Let him be complete at his own disposal. Yet it is manifest that, unless he choose actually to dispose of himself for the good of others, no validity could attach to what he did. Vicarious satisfaction can never be compulsory. Willingness enters into its very essence. To compel one to suffer for another would be the height of injustice. Moreover, God will not accept any sacrifice which is reluctantly offered to him. The heart must be in it. My son, give me thine heart, Proverbs 23:26, is his first request from his children, for when he has that, he has everything. Inexpressibly blessed it is to observe how plainly and how frequently this very element is seen in the great mediator. To the proposal in the eternal covenant, he gave his cheerful consent. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Psalms 40, 7, 8. In all that he did to make atonement for sin, the Lord Jesus manifested no degree of reluctance. His meat was to do the Father's will, John 4.34. He was led, not driven, as the lamb to slaughter, Acts 8.32. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hairs, Isaiah 56. He poured out his soul unto death, Isaiah 53.12. He gave up the spirit, John 19.30. Let the interested reader turn to the Song of Solomon and behold how blessedly he is there represented as leaping and skipping over the mountains of separation as he hastens to his people. Number six, the mediator must be fairly united to his people. In his defense of the satisfaction of Christ, Turretin pointed out how that there are three kinds of union known to us in human relations which justifies the imputation of sin one to another. Natural is between a father and his child. Moral and political is between a king and his subjects. Voluntary is between friends or between a arranged criminal and his sponsor. But the union of Christ with his people rests on far stronger ground than any of these considered long. It was voluntary on his part, for he spontaneously assumed all the obligations he bore. But it was also a covenant ordinance decreed by the three divine persons in council, whose behest are alone the foundation of all law, all rights, and of all obligations. The scripture plainly teaches that God has established between Christ and his people a union sura generis, transcending all earthly analogies in its intimacy of fellowship and reciprocal co-partnership, both federal and vital. Dr. C. Hodge. The meditorial position assumed by Christ and the redemptive work which he performed cannot be rightly understood till they are viewed in connection with the everlasting covenant. It is not difficult to see that the death on the cross was only made possible for the Son of God by his becoming man. But we need to go farther back and ask, what was the relation between Christ and his people that made it meet for him to become incarnate and die for them? It is not enough to say that he was their surety and substitute, true, blessedly true, 
he wrought and suffered for them because he was their surety to the offended lawgiver and judge. But what rendered it proper that he should occupy such a place? No satisfactory answer can be given till we go right back to the counsels of the Godhead. Covenant oneness accounts for all, vindicates all, and explains all. Christ was substituted for his people because he was and is one with them, identified with us and we with him, not merely as decreed by the sovereign authority of the Godhead, but as covenanted between the Eternal Father and the Eternal Son. Christ bore the sins of many because in his covenant identification with them, their sins became sinlessly but truly his sins. And unto the sons and daughters of the covenant, the Father imputes the righteousness of his Son because in their covenant oneness with him, his righteousness is undeservedly but truly their own righteousness. This alone explains all Christ's history as the incarnate Son of God. All his interposition as a savior of his people and it places the career of Christ on earth in this true relation to the eternal purpose of God in its completeness as bearing on the covenant clients as well as the covenant head it is the formal instrument by which faith comes in the sure possession of Christ himself and the benefits of redemption Christ is expressly denominated the last Adam 1 Corinthians 15:45, and therefore are we told that the first Adam was the figure of him that was to come, Romans 5.14. Adam was a figure of Christ in quite a number of ways, but supremely in this, that he stood as the federal head of a race. God entered into a covenant with him, Hosea 6.6, margin, and therefore he stood and fell as the legal representative of of all his family. When he sinned, they sinned. When he died, they died, Romans 5.12.19. So was it with the last Adam. He stood as the covenant head and federal representative of all his people, being legally one with them, so that he assumed and discharged all their responsibilities. The birth of Christ was the begun manifestation of the eternal union between him and his people. In the covenant, Christ had said to the Father, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me, Hebrews 2, 12, 13. Most blessedly is this explained in what immediately follows. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, and therefore he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Federation is the root of this amazing mercy. Covenant identification is the key which explains it. Christ came not to strangers, but to brethren. He came here not to procure a people for himself, but to secure a people already his. Ephesians 1.4, Matthew 1.21 Since such a union has existed between Christ and his people from all eternity, it inevitably followed that when he came to earth, he must bear their sins, and now that he has gone to heaven, they must be clothed. Isaiah 61.10 With all the rewardableness of his perfect obedience. This is the strongest buttress of all in the walls of truth, yet the one which has been most frequently assailed by its enemies. Men have argued that the punishment of the innocent as though he were guilty was an outrage upon justice. In the human realm, to punish a man for something in which he is neither responsible nor guilty is beyond question unjust. But this principle did not apply to Christ, for he had voluntarily identified himself with his people in such an intimate way that it could be said for both 
he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Hebrews 2.11 When we say that the union between Christ and his people is a federal one, we mean that it is of such a nature as to involve an identification of legal relations and reciprocal obligations and rights. By the obedience of one shall many be made, parenthesis, legally constituted, righteous. Romans 5.19 God's elect were chosen in Christ. Ephesians 1.4 They are created in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.10 They were circumcised in him. Colossians 2.11 They are made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 In view of this ineffable union, Scripture does not hesitate to say, We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Ephesians 4.30 Number 7 The mediator must be divine. Think of the work the mediator had to perform. He was to restore to divine favor those who were under the curse. He had to render unto the law an obedience which one created sinless, parenthesis Adam, had failed to perform. He was required to present unto God a satisfaction possessing infinite merits which procured infinite blessings for his people. This a finite creature could not do. He was to endure the full weight of God's outpoured wrath upon all the sins of his people as they were concentrated upon the surety. He was to vanquish the devil so as to deliver his captives. He was to overcome sin so that its sting was destroyed. He was to swallow up death and bestow eternal life on all those the Father had given him. Finally, he was to give the Holy Spirit unto his people who would apply to them the redemption purchased. Who but a divine person was confident for such an undertaking? Again, think of what has been affected by the mediator's work. It has restored God's people to true liberty, Galatians 5.1. Now, as Witsuas rightly pointed out, if any mere creature, however exalted, had redeemed us, we should have become the personal property of that creature, for he who sets us free makes a purchase of us for his possession, 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20. But it is a manifest contradiction to be freed and be free and yet at the same time be the property of any creature, for true liberty consists in subjection alone. Thus our Lord says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8:36. Again, for the redeemed to glory in anyone as their Savior, to say to him, Thou art our Lord, to render to him adoring homage is an honor to which no mere creature could have the slightest claim. Thus the mediator must be a divine person. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins, Hebrews 10.4. Why? In the first place, those typical sacrifices could not, in the nature of them, magnify the precepts of the law. They were totally incapable of rendering that perfect obedience which was required. Nor, secondly, could they endure the full penalty of the law, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof for a burnt offering, Isaiah 40:16. The fires of God's wrath had utterly annihilated the cattle upon a thousand hills and would still wait for something else to consume. Therefore did God lay help upon one that is mighty, Psalm 89:19. Christ was able not only to perfectly keep the law, but to suffer the full extent of its unbated curse. It is the altar that sanctifieth the gift, Matthew 23:19, 19, 
the reference being to the type of Exodus 29:37. It shall be an altar most holy, whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy. Upon this, Dr. T. Rigby in 1815 well said, From whence it is inferred that the altar was more holy than the gift which was laid upon it, and it signifies that the altar on which Christ was offered added an excellency to his offering. Now nothing could be said to do so but his divine nature being personally united to his humanity which rendered it infinitely valuable. For this reason the mercy seat was made not of wood but of pure gold. Exodus 25:17. How often does the Holy Spirit give supreme emphasis to this fact? Before he tells us in Hebrews 1 that Christ has by himself purged our sins, he first presents this vicarious sufferer as God's Son, the heir of all things, the brightness of God's glory, yea, the expressed image of his person. So in Philippians 2, the one who humbled himself and became obedient unto death is first set before us as him who subsisted in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So again, in Colossians 1, he is described as the creator of all things, verse 16, ere we read of the peace which he made by the blood of his cross. It is because Christ was who he was which gave an infinite value to what he did. We close this somewhat lengthy chapter with the concluding words of Dr. Symington on this enthralling subject. From the perfection of his atonement arising out of the circumstances specified above does it proceed that he makes intercession for us within the veil of the upper sanctuary, that he dispenses with a munificent hand the gifts of his purchase and causes the prey of a great spoil to be divided. And pardon and peace, redemption and holiness, eternal glory and bliss are among the rich fruits of the royal and triumphal conquest he achieved when by his infinitely meritorious death he spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly. With the most entire confidence, then, may the needy sinner, smitten with the deepest sense of conscious unworthiness, rely for salvation on this all-sufficient atonement. Chapter 5. The Atonement, Its Nature. An inadequate conception of the terrible enormity of sin necessarily results from a faulted view of the atonement. In reading through scores of books which are written at varying intervals during the last 400 years, we have been struck by the fact that side by side with the modifying of the immeasurable heinousness of sin, there has been a whittling down of the most essential feature comprised in the character of Christ's redemptive work. The more lightly sin be regarded, the less will appear the need for such a stupendous undertaking as that which the Son of God entered upon and triumphantly carried through. Sin is an evil of infinite magnitude, for it is commuted against an infinite person unto whom every creature is under infinite obligations of rendering unceasing and joyful obedience. This is why God's punishment of sin unatoned for will be eternal, necessarily so, for nothing less will fit the case Nothing less will satisfy divine justice. And this is why God could receive no satisfaction to his broken law save from the one that possessed infinite merits. Romans 3.22 defines sin as the coming short of the glory of God, that is, his manifestive or decorative glory. Sin is failing to render unto God that to which his high honor is entitled, namely, implicit, perfect, constant homage and service. God's essential blessedness cannot be affected by the creature. Were he to so please, 
he has merely to utter the words and every rebel throughout the entire universe would immediately cease to exist. But his decorative glory can be affected, yea, is so by our sins. Sin dishonors God, and fallen man is utterly unable to restore his honor, yet this inability to do so is criminal and increases his guilt. Not only does sin dishonor God, but it cannot be remitted by him and the transgressor pardoned till every claim of his law has been met. This the creature cannot do. As we showed in our last chapter, none but a mediator who was divine, as well as human, was competent to render full satisfaction unto God. This is what Christ has done. His atonement has brought back to God's declarative glory that revenue of honor and praise to which he is entitled. Now the life and death of Christ are historical facts which are practically universally admitted, but the word of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.18, that is, the scriptural explanation of his atoning work is purely a matter of divine revelation, and it is to be received with uncaviling humility and rested upon with peaceful assurance simply because it is made known to us on the authority of God. Reasoning thereon is utterly vain, and speculating thereabout is profane. Moreover, as we stated in the opening chapter, all attempts to illustrate from supposed analogies in human relations dishonor God and grossly pervert his truth. The atoning work of Christ is unique. It stands alone in its solitary grandeur. There is nothing in all history which in any wise resembles it. When a preacher attempts to simplify the mystery of the three persons of the Godhead by some illustration from nature, he only exhibits his own foolishness and helps no one. So, too, every effort to explain the atonement with what is outside Scripture is only turning from light to darkness. Divine mysteries cannot be understood by means of those things which come within the range of our physical senses. It has been rightly said that accuracy of terms clarifies thought, to which we may add, accuracy of thought is essential to right views of any portion of the truth, and right views of the truth are honoring to God. Therefore, no effort should be spared in seeking to attain into the utmost possible precision of language when seeking to set forth the things of God. Many reader has obtained only a cloudy view of the subject because the writer confused effects with the nature of the thing he was dealing with. For example, assurance of salvation is one of the fruits of faith as well as the gift of the Spirit, yet it has often been regarded as an essential element of faith itself. In consequence, because they lack assurance, some real Christians have been plunged into what Bunyan terms the Slav despond because they imagined they were not saved at all. In like manner, many writers on the atonement have carelessly jumbled together some of its leading effects and fruits with the nature of it. A pertinent example of what we have just said is seen in the now almost current idea that the atonement of Christ signifies at one moment the bringing of God and the sinners together. But that is not the meaning of the term at all, either as used in Scripture or as employed in sound theology. Reconciliation is one of the many effects or fruits of Christ's atonement, but was not part of the work he did. Many others have failed to distinguish between the atonement of Christ and the redemption, which is one of its fruits. It is vitally important to distinguish between what Christ did and that which has resulted therefrom. To understand what he did, let us now attempt to define the nature of his atonement. Number one, it was a federal work. By the term federal, we mean that there was an official oneness existing between the mediator and those for whom he mediated, or in simpler language, 
that there is a legal union between Christ and his people. When in the Old Testament the elect are spoken of as the party with whom God makes a covenant, they are viewed as in Christ and one with him. A covenant is not made with them as alone and apart from Christ. This is taught in Galatians 3.16. To Abraham and his seed were the promises made, but this seed is Christ. The elect are here, as also in 1 Corinthians 12.12, called Christ because of the union between Christ and the elect. And in like manner, when Christ, as in Isaiah 42.16, is spoken of as the party with whom the Father covenants, the elect are to be viewed as in him. As united and one with him, his atoning suffering is looked upon as their atoning suffering. I am crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, written by William Shedd in 1889. Christ is not only the substitute, but the surety of his people. The gospel is founded on the fact Adam and Christ are covenant heads and representatives of their respective families. Hence they are termed the first man and the second man, 1 Corinthians 15.47 as if there had been none other but themselves, for the children of each were entirely dependent on their head. In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive, 1 Corinthians 15.22. The first all includes every individual of mankind. The last all is explained by the apostles to mean they that are Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.23. James Haldane, Doctrine of the Atonement. It was as a head of his elected God covenanted with Christ so that in a very real sense that covenant was made with them. Thus it is which explains all those passages that speak of the saints' oneness with Christ as that they were crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, died with him, Romans 6.8, were buried with him, as scriptural baptism symbolizes, Romans 6.4, were quickened with him, Colossians 2.12, raised with him, Ephesians 2.6, and made to sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 6. So they were legally one with him, and he with them, in all that he did in rendering a full satisfaction to God. On this vitally important point, we cannot do better than to give a synopsis of the last section from chapter 2 of H. Martin's invaluable work. How are we to formulate and establish the relations subsisting between Christ and his as Redeemer and redeemed unless we fall back upon the doctrine of the covenant? Some relation, it is evident, must be acknowledged as subsisting between Christ and those on whose behalf he dies, else we do not even come within sight of the idea of a vicarious sacrifice. The possibility of real atonement absolutely postulates and demands a conjecture between him who atones and those for whom his atonement is available. This is beyond the need of proof, and as there is an absolute and obvious necessity for some conjecture or relation so in searching for the conjunction or relation which actually subsists, our search cannot terminate satisfactorily till we reach and recognize the covenant oneness. The same reason that demands a relation remains unsatisfied till it meets with this relation. It does not meet the necessities of the case to refer to the union between Christ and his people, which is effected in their regeneration by the agency of his Holy Spirit and the instrumentality of that faith which is his gift. True, this is indispensable before any can enjoy any of the blessings of his purchase, but there must have been a relation between Christ and his people before he ransomed them. Nor are the necessities of the case met by a reference to the Incarnation. True, the Redeemer must take upon him flesh and blood before he could redeem 
yet there must be a bond of union more intimate than that which Christ holds alike to the saved and the unsaved. He took hold of the seed of Abraham, Hebrew 2.16, not the seed of Adam. Nor is it sufficient to say that the relation is that of suretyship and substitution, for the question still calls for answer, what rendered it fit and righteous that the Son of God shall suffer for others, the Holy One be made sin? It is to this point the inquiry must be narrowed. Christ was the surety of his people because he was their substitute. He acted on their behalf because he stood in their room. The relation of a substitute justifies the suretyship, but what shall justify the substitution? There is the hinge upon which everything turns. We hardly concur with Dr. Martin when he says, We can obtain no satisfaction on this point, no sufficient answer to this question, and therefore no satisfactory conclusion to our whole line of investigation till the doctrine of everlasting covenant oneness comes into view. That is the grand underlying relation. That is the grand primary conjunction between the Redeemer and the redeemed, which alone bears up and accounts for all else in respect of relation which can be predicated as true concerning them. Both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, Hebrew 2.11. He is substituted for us because he is one with us, identified with us, and we with him. Promoted by infinite love, Christ, as the God-man, freely accepted the terms of the everlasting covenant which had been proposed to him and voluntarily assumed all legal responsibilities of his people. As their head, he came down to this earth, lived, wrought, and died as their vicarious representative. He obeyed and suffered as their substitute. By his obedience and sufferings, he discharged all their obligations. His sufferings remitted the penalty of the law, and his obedience merited infinite blessings for them. Romans 5, 12-19 explicitly affirms that the elect of God are legally made righteous on precisely the same principle by which they were first made sinners. Our union with Christ is of the same order and involves the same class of effects as our union with Adam. We call it a union both federal and vital. Others may call it what they please, but it will nevertheless remain certain that it is of such a nature as to involve an identity of legal relations and reciprocal obligations and rights. A. A. Hodge For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Romans 5.19 Made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 More than a thousand years ago, Augustine remarked, Such is the ineffable closeness of this transcendental union, that we hear the voice of the members suffering when they suffered in their head and cried to the head on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in like manner we hear the voice of the head suffering when he suffered in his members and cried to the persecutor on the way to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Acts 9.4 The federal relation of Christ to his people was a real one upon which the infallible God deemed it just to punish Christ for the sins of his people and to credit them with his righteousness and thus completely satisfy all the demands of his law upon them. As the result of that union, Christ was in all things made like unto his brethren, Hebrews 2.17, being numbered, parenthesis, reckoned one with transgressors, Isaiah 53.12, 
and they in turn are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, Ephesians 5.30. In consequence of this federal union, Christ is also made a quickening spirit, 1 Corinthians 15.45, so that in due time each of his people becomes a living and vital member of that special body of which he is the head, Ephesians 1.19.23. The relation between Christ and those who benefit from his atonement was, therefore, no vague, indefinite, haphazard one, but consisted of an actual covenant oneness, legal identity, vital union. Suretyship presupposes it. Strict substitution demands it. Real imputation proceeds upon it. The penalty Christ endured could not otherwise have been inflicted. They for whom satisfaction was made due by inevitable necessity share its benefits and receive what was purchased for them. This alone meets the objection of the injustice of the innocent suffering for the guilty, as it alone explains the transfer of Christ's sufferings and merits to the redeemed. Number two, it was a substitutionary work. The terms substitutionary and vicarious are often used very loosely. Many who have sought to gain a reputation for orthodoxy and thereby ingratiate themselves into the countenance of God's people have made use of bare terms yet intended by them nothing more than that Christ suffered on behalf of others for the benefit of others. But that is only half-truth and therefore close akin to a lie. Vicarious suffering or punishment is more than suffering endured for the good of others. The suffering of martyrs for good of their cause, of patriots for their country, of philanthropists for mankind are not vicarious, for they are not substitutionary. Vicarious suffering is suffering endured not only on behalf of others, but in the stead of others, in the actual place of others. It therefore carries with it the exemption of the party in whose place the suffering is endured. What a substitute does for the person whose place he fills absolves that person from the need of himself doing or suffering the same thing. Thus, when we affirm that the sufferings of Christ were vicarious, we mean that he substituted himself in the room of sinners and satisfied the law in their behalf, and that in such a way the law can now make no claim whatsoever upon him. Christ's suffering were vicarious in identically the same way that the death of animals in the Old Testament sacrifices was in lieu of the death of the transgressor offering them. The scriptures teach that Christ was in a strict and exact sense the substitute of his people, that is, but by divine appointment and of his own free will, he assumed all their liabilities, took their law place, and bound himself to do in their stead all that the law demanded, rendering to it that obedience upon which their well-being depended, and suffering its penalty which their sins deserved. Christ became their vicarious sponsor, assuming their obligations and undertaking to satisfy divine justice on their behalf. So real was his substitution in their place that what he did and suffered for them precluded all necessity of their meeting the demands of the law in their own persons. Thus the satisfaction which Christ made was far more than an expedient for removing these, those obstacles which prevented God from justifying the ungodly. It was that which required justice to remit the sins of all for whom it was made. The satisfaction of Christ was infinitely more than a means for opening a way whereby the grace of God could flow forth. It was that which necessitated all for whom it was made being vested with all its meritorious efficacy.
in becoming the substitute of his people, in placing himself under their liabilities, in engaging to discharge all their responsibilities, Christ was necessarily made under the law, Galatians 4.4, so that he might keep its statutes, fulfill its requirements, and thus magnify and render it honorable, Isaiah 42.21. The scriptures plainly teach that Christ's obedience was as truly vicarious as was his suffering, and that he reconciled the elect to God by the one as well as the other. That is why we insist on using the wider term, the satisfaction of Christ for atonement, strictly speaking, covers only the expiation of our guilt by his vicarious suffering. The active obedience of Christ to the law was required as the meritorious condition upon which the divine favor and the promised reward of the covenant might come upon all whose surety he was. We must never attempt to separate between the active obedience and the passive sufferings of Christ, either when contemplating his meditorial work or when considering the effect of that work upon the covenant standing of his people. Christ's vicarious obedience is an intrinsic part of that righteousness which he wrought in our stead and which is imputed to us as the ground of our justification. All that Christ did on earth he did as mediator. He was acting in our stead just as truly when he was obeying God as when he was enduring his wrath. It is in reference to both of these co-jointly that he is designated the Lord of our righteousness, Jeremiah 23.6. It needs to be pointed out that the obedience of Christ is not to be restricted to what he wrought prior to the cross, nor are his sufferings to be limited to what he endured during the crucifixion and immediately preceding it. No, he suffered all through his life and obeyed throughout his dying. The whole earth life of Christ, including his birth itself, was one of continual self-emptying even unto death. His birth and every moment of his life in the form of a servant was of the nature of holy suffering. Every experience of pain during the whole course of his life and eminently in his death on the cross was on his part a voluntary and meritorious act of obedience. He lived his whole life from his birth to his death as a representative, obeying and suffering in our stead and for our sakes, and during this whole course all his suffering was obedience, and all his obedience was suffering. The righteousness which he wrought out for his people consisted precisely in this suffering and obedience. The righteousness of Christ was imputed severally to each believer, as the ground of his justification consists precisely of this suffering and obedience. His earth life as suffering cancels the penalty and as obedience fulfills the precepts and secures the promised reward of the law, but the sufferings and the obedience were not separated in fact and are inseparable in principle and equally necessary to satisfy the law of the covenant and to secure the salvation of the elect. Written by A. A. Hodge. The law as a covenant of life was accompanied by two sanctions. First, the promise of life our divine favor and eternal well-being conditioned upon perfect obedience. See Leviticus 18.5, Matthew 19.7, Romans 10.5, and Galatians 3.12. Second, the penalty of death suspended on disobedience. Now, the object for which Christ became incarnate was that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, Romans 8.4, and therefore is Christ declared to be the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, Romans 10.4. And this was only made possible by his fulfilling all the law's conditions. Had not Christ vicariously obeyed the law, 
and had he merely suffered its penalties due our sins, then we should be destitute of any positive righteousness and would be left just where Adam was before he fell. But the scripture in fact affirmed that Christ saved by his obedience as well as by his suffering. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Romans 5.19 Christ's obedience is to be interpreted here in the same natural and obvious way as the disobedience of Adam. Thus our twofold obligation to God as creatures and as sinners was met and discharged by Christ. As our representative, he bore in the union of his divine personality our nature impersonally, a true body and a reasonable soul, in order that he might thus be made vicariously under the law to the end that by his purely vicarious obedience he might redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, Galatians 4, 4, 5. This means necessarily, A, that Christ was made under the law, that he did not belong there naturally, but was transferred to that position by an act of divine sovereignty. B, that he was placed there not for himself, but in our stead. C, that he was made under the law for the purpose of securing for us not only the remission of sins, but also the adoption of sons, whereby we became heirs of God through Christ, Galatians 4, 7. All of which is conditioned not upon suffering, but upon obedience. All that Christ did on earth he did as our mediator, and all that he did as mediator he did in the stead of those for whom he acted as mediator. Therefore he said, Matthew 3.15, For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness, that is, all that God requires of his people. A. A. Hodge In Romans 8.3, parenthesis, the context should be carefully weighed. We read of what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. That which the law was unable to do was justify the ungodly. The reason for this was that the law demands perfect obedience, and this the flesh, because of sin, makes it impossible for the sinner to render. In view of this, God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, sent him into the law place of his people, and by his executing the penalty upon him, condemned the sin in the flesh. And by accepting his vicarious obedience, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. The phrase, the righteousness of the law, is used in the New Testament to express the totality of that which the law demands as the condition of favor. In Adam, before he fell, the righteousness of the law was perfect obedience. In the case of all his descendants, it is perfect obedience plus the suffering of its penalty, Hence the impossibility of our achieving a legal righteousness by our own personal agency. Now the righteousness of the law is placed in antithesis from the righteousness of the faith, Romans 10, 5, 6. That is to say, parenthesis see context, the futile attempts of the sinner to satisfy the requirements of the law in his own person is contrasted from the vicarious satisfaction of Christ which faith apprehends and appropriates. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. To the same effect, our worthless righteousness is contrasted from God's perfect righteousness in Christ. See Romans 3.20.26. Obedience is therefore the essence of righteousness, and that obedience the obedience of Christ. Therefore we read that he has made unto us wisdom and righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1.30. And therefore Paul declares his desire to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, 
But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, Philippians 3.9. The endurance of penalty by Christ demanded that our sins should be remitted. The performing of obedience by Christ demanded that his righteousness be imputed to us and that we should be eternally established in God's favor. In the above passage, Romans 8.3, we are told that God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful, parenthesis, literally sins, flesh. This remarkable expression needs to be carefully investigated, lest we err by overstatement or come short of its meaning by defective statement. First, it affirms the reality of Christ's humanity. Second, inasmuch as that humanity was reunited, united to the Godhead, it must be sinless humanity generated by the Holy Spirit, it was pure and holy. This was secured by the fact that though he took flesh from Adam through the virgin, he was not in Adam's covenant. Third, its likeness or appearance was after the order of sin's flesh. Between him and sinful man there was no perceptible difference that could be traced in weariness and exhaustion, sorrow and heaviness. Christ was in all respects made like unto his brethren. But toil and sorrow, weakness and pain came not on him as the inevitable consequence of the Incarnation, but resulted from his coming here as the surety of his people. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words then are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.